Hi, you're listening to Let's Talk About It with me, Ani White. This is episode 17, Pray Away. We were the leaders of the ex-gay movement. We believed that there was something desperately wrong, that there was something pathological about it, that it was not your normal state, wasn't what God intended, that something must have happened to make you gay. We really believed that gay people could be saved. This is what the Bible says. It says that some of you were homosexuals, right? But you've changed, you've been washed, you've been transformed. We believed what we were doing was the right thing to continue pursuing change. And if you didn't want to be gay, that there was a way out for you also. We were doing what we thought God wanted us to do. In this Netflix documentary, ex-leaders and a survivor of the so-called conversion therapy movement speak out about its harm to the LGBTQ plus community and its devastating persistence. So for content warnings today, there is sexual assault, mentioned abuse, abusive therapy practices, self-harm, and mentions of suicide. So we start the documentary with a screen that just tells us the definition of reparative or quote-unquote conversion therapy which is the attempt to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity by a religious leader, licensed counselor, or in peer support groups. Now, all major medical and mental health associations have denounced the practice as harmful. So in the first scene, we see someone outside this little strip mall, and he is asking shoppers if they need any prayers today. And a few people do stop to talk to him and pray with him, And he says that he once lived as transgender and lived in sin. And he displays this poster with photos of him when he was a woman or lived as a woman. I have to say, I, I immediately felt my eyes kind of fill with tears that this person felt the need to somehow give penance for the time that they lived as a trans woman. It was It was heartbreaking right away. Um, He says that when you know the truth, the truth sets you free and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can change your wants. We then see the former leaders of what's called the ex-gay movement. And they believe they were doing what God wanted them to do, which was to help those who did not want to be gay and to show them that there was a way to not be gay anymore. And we kind of start in Reno, Nevada with Yvette Cantu Schneider. And in her interview, we first see some old footage of her talking about her six years as a lesbian and in that lifestyle, as she calls it. And she talks about how it took her three years to overcome her sexual attraction to women. But through being surrounded by her church, she was able to overcome this, she says. Now, she did not come into the church until she was 27, but she came there because she was looking for something. This is 1990. She had 17 friends die of AIDS during the AIDS crisis, and she's in her 20s at this time, and she just had to watch a lot of her loved ones die. And then we see that motherfucker, Jerry Falwell. Now, in episode two of this podcast, you can listen to me rip into him and his good-for-nothing son. So, you know, rotten hell, Jerry. Anyway, now we get to listen to Jerry talk about how homosexuals are violating the laws of God, and so that's why they get AIDS, so... Fuck you very much, Jerry. Now, Yvette says that to join the church and have a set of rules to follow at this time just felt like a relief to her. But then we kind of back up 
let's go back to 1976 and kind of the beginnings of the ex-gay movement. The leaders at this time say they grew up in a time when being gay wasn't just considered a sin in their churches, but it was also a crime. And Michael Bussey, the co-founder of Exodus, who, which we'll get into later, says he'd always wanted to change who he was since the time he was a boy getting bullied for being gay. He says that he looked around at his church and the groups that they had in church for recovering alcoholics or a group for divorced people. And he thought, well, why isn't there a group for me, for people who don't want to have gay feelings? So he started one. Everyone in this group said they felt like it was a relief to know that they weren't the only ones with these feelings, but they truly believed if they just kept believing and claiming that God was changing them, then he would change them. They believe that they were the only support group like this, but then they kind of start hearing about these other small ministries that are like theirs. So they finally think to get together and form a conference. And this is in 1976 that they have the first conference in Anaheim, California. And that's where the idea of the group Exodus was born. And letters just start pouring in from Christians who were looking for a group like Exodus. Now in 1998, 60 Minutes does this news piece on Exodus. And Exodus at this point is claiming to convert gays with behavior modification, prayer, and peer counseling. And 60 Minutes speaks with uh, who is the board president of Exodus at this time, now former for sure, and his name's John Polk. And he says that he had formerly been gay, but no longer was. And, you know, then we see John today, which I have to say his appearance is remarkable. Like there is a remarkable change. He actually, in my opinion, looks younger today than he did back in 1998, which is, it's odd. It's an odd change. But anyway, he talks about how at one time he was the most famous quote unquote ex-gay person in the world. And he really arose to national prominence with his outgoing personality and his willingness to be the figurehead for this movement. Um, He was quite articulate in everything that he talked about. And he did end up marrying a former lesbian and had a child. And they were constantly being asked to do appearances on talk shows and interviews. And they were like on the cover of Newsweek. Okay, so they were fairly big news. And his role was really just to get the message out that homosexuality was something that could be changed. We now see Michael Bussey again, and he talks about how at the time, homosexuality was believed to be a psychological illness that you needed treatment for. Now we're talking about the 70s, I think, because Michael Bussey, when he formed Exodus, this is like 76 or whatever. And of course, now we know that's (laughs) that thought is not correct. But at the time, Exodus was the largest group offering gay conversion therapy. And in this therapy, it was said that, well, you must have been traumatized in some way to have become gay, abused in some way. And, you know, if you can resolve those issues, then your innate heterosexuality will emerge. And Michael says, you know, the leaders of this movement, for the most part, did not have formal education in psychology or counseling or human sexuality they had no qualifications to do what they were doing. And many of the people seeking this therapy had panic attacks and depression and suicidal ideation because 
they felt guilty that they couldn't change. And Michael Bussey says he couldn't continue to pretend that he was changing and that the people he was helping were changing. And it was at this point he realized, you know, he's harming people. So he ends up leaving the group in 1979. But Exodus kept growing. We now head to Washington, D.C., where we meet Julie Rogers, and we see her with her partner getting engagement photos taken and speaking with a wedding planner. And then we kind of go back to her past. In 1993, she says she was just a really happy kid. They lived on three acres of land with a pond out back. They could just run around wild. And her family was a part of Bible churches in the area and really held to fundamentalist Christian teachings. And at the time, she says she found a lot of beauty in the teachings, but everything in their lives revolved around being conservative Christians. Her mom was listening to people like Jerry Falwell and other disgusting people just like him. And they were talking about how schools were telling five-year-olds perverse sexual things in class. And apparently it's not a sin to them to be outright liars, but okay. And talking about how homosexuality was wrong and perverse and just hate pouring out of their hateful lying mouths, basically. But, you know, in Julie's family, being gay was dirty and scary and bad. But she does end up coming out to her mother when she is 16 years old. And her mom is pretty frantic and she takes her to someone named Ricky Shillette. Now, Ricky Shillette is the executive director of a program called Living Hope. And he goes through this whole theory that he has of how people end up with same-sex attraction. So he has this theory that like, okay, if you have a bad relationship with your same-sex parent, it manifests itself when you go through puberty or adolescence or something, and that turns into gay thoughts. And so Julie's like, well, okay, but I have a great relationship with my mom. So, And he's like, well, okay, then that means you're a wild card. And you likely have been through some kind of sexual abuse. And she's like, no. And he says, well, that's because people who've been abused, they can sometimes forget that it happened. So, you know, that must be it. So Julie's like, okay, I guess, I guess this must be it. So, you know, she's 16. She didn't know what else to think, really. And she says Ricky really became her mentor on a path to be good, even if she wasn't sure she could be straight. Now we see and meet Jeffrey McCall, who we saw in the beginning of this documentary asking to pray for people outside that strip mall. And he says that Jesus was the first time he found someone who really loved him. And the Lord let him know he needed to share his story. And we see him at a church that looks to be, you know, kind of one of those rooms you would see in a strip mall, that kind of a church, that kind of thing. And he's invited to come forward Everyone talks about him and prays with him. And, you know, he's been asked to come there and talk to this congregation. And he talks about how when he was in school in the early 2000s, there were some big cultural shifts happening around homosexuality. He says Will and Grace was the most popular show on TV. And so he started putting his whole identity into being gay. And he says that's what the community's like. You put your whole identity into being gay. And... That's what's being taught in schools, he says, so that people will get surgery and hormones. I just want to say, have any of these people been in a school? Like, as a former teacher, I'll just say, since when does anyone have extra time in the curriculum to teach any of this stuff? 
it's kind of hilarious to even think that they would have time, even if they wanted to teach that, but okay. But again, it's, it's very sad that Jeffrey thinks he has to promote what he knows himself is not true in order to be accepted fully into this group. And he's promoting these false narratives of what happened in school as though he himself lived through this as though he was taught in school to be gay and trans when, I mean, likely they just were, I, I mean, I can't say that the teachers all accepted him as that, but he clearly must have felt accepted in some way to say this. All of us logical people just know that's not true. And he certainly doesn't provide any proof, like where are the receipts if you're going to claim things like this. But again, this is likely Jeffrey's way of gaining entree into this group of people who claim to love him. And in my opinion, that's what Jeffrey's really searching for. Now, Yvette, back to Yvette, she talks about how she just followed the rules when she joined the church and that when she looked around and saw what the leaders were doing, speaking out, she wanted to be a part of that. So in 1994, she speaks for the first time at a fundraising meeting and it's like all these people packed in this house and she's really prepared a lot for her talk that she's going to give. And she talks about how politically homosexualities are looking for special rights and minority rights and not just equal rights. And this talk goes over really well with these people. Everyone seems pretty riveted about what she's saying. And then in the Q&A portion a woman in the audience asks if she would be willing to move to D.C. and interview for a job at the Family Research Council. Uh, if you will recall, I have talked about this piece of shit organization before. Multiple times, actually, now. Um, Josh Duggar once worked for this hate group, which I do not say lightly. It's technically considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, but so I did talk about it on the two episodes I did on the Duggars and the IBLP and the documentary called Shiny Happy People. So I think I also talked about it, the Family Research Council, on the episode about Jerry Falwell Jr. too, which that's actually the second episode I ever did. And I think that one's called God Forbid. So let's just say I'm familiar with it. Anyway, it's one of the most prominent Christian right organizations in the country. They have a lot of political power now. Shocking no one, the leaders of this group at the time, which I'm sure it hasn't changed, were straight white men. And Yvette says they were looking for a spokesperson who had formerly been gay and was now straight. And she was told she would be great for this position because she's young and has a Hispanic last name and she doesn't look gay. So we see Yvette looking over her mementos of her time at the FRC She's got her old business card, some old VHS cassette tapes of press conferences she did. As Yvette says, and what we know about the Christian right agenda is that they're always looking for something to play to their base, a cause that they can get people to rally behind. Now, Jerry Falwell talked about this pretty openly, so not making stuff up here. Anyway, homosexuality was one of the things that they would use to rile up their base for fundraising and for voting. And the general feeling was that gay rights were becoming inevitable. And the FRC was saying, this is going to destroy the family, destroy marriage. It's going to lead to the erosion of Christian values or whatever. And Yvette says she doesn't want to get rid of these mementos, though, because it was a part of her life, what she did 
but it's very hard to look back on now. Back to Julie, she's talking about how she started at Living Hope with Ricky at 16 and didn't move on till 25, I think. So, you know, that's almost 10 years. She did a weekly meeting with Ricky and had a peer group thing weekly, had lunch with Ricky on Sundays. So she was spending a good amount of her life doing things with this Living Hope group. Her whole life was structured around not being gay. There was a high population of youth in this group, at least 50 people, and they were not allowed to have outside contact with each other. So no one knew each other's last names. They couldn't be Facebook friends. They were only allowed to talk when they were supervised because there was this fear that they would get together and have sex with each other outside the supervised group. And it was decided between Ricky and her mom that she would quit softball so she didn't become gay, because that's how that works, um, and that she would have to go to a Christian college, because that would mean she wouldn't become gay, too, apparently. Now, in 2006, during the Exodus Annual Conference, which their co annual conference is really what Exodus was known for, and we see Randy Thomas, a former vice president of Exodus, and he's talking about how this was really the place where people could come and learn about how to learn lore about the journey of overcoming same-sex attraction and to have fellowship with other people like them. There were lots of to topics of workshops that said things like family dynamics or helping men embrace masculinity, uh, helping women embrace femininity. And Julie went to this conference for the first time at age 17 because Ricky did take people to this Exodus conference every year. And it was the first time she met people who she felt were really devoted to this process. Um, they were supposed to embrace their femininity and wear makeup. And then the guys would play football. And Bible studies would take place. But Julie says, you know, when the leaders were in bed, they were there with other queer people like them. And it felt like one of the few safe spaces in their world. They could just talk and laugh and be themselves. And that's what belonging looked like for them. Now, there were several speakers, big ex-gay names, and they told stories about how they didn't have to be gay, that they had come to Jesus. And Julie just said she wanted to be like them. She wanted to be happy and be loved by God. Now, back to John Pauk, he says the Christian church is really based on being married, being a family man, having children. And that was his goal when he went to Exodus. His goal was to get married and be a father. And he says it was a goal he pursued with a vengeance. He says you were taught, you know, you'll become friends with a woman, you'll feel safe with her, and then hopefully sexual attraction will grow from that. And they said, you know, you don't have to be attracted to all women just one. You just need one woman and then, you know, you'll fall in love with her and you'll marry her. Now, John, he has a lot of regrets, like most of the people in this documentary. And he talks about how he and his wife looked the part and played the part. And he says that at the time, he did not see himself as a gay person anymore because he was not behaving like one. That he had basically tried to tell himself it was the behavior that made you gay. But he very much still had gay feelings. And if he had been honest, he would have said that he was still struggling with temptation and having sexual attraction to men. But 
he said he felt like he represented this larger movement, so he couldn't admit that. And the interviewer in the documentaries asks him, you know, did you lie? And he says, well, absolutely, I lied. And he says it's with shame and embarrassment that he realizes his dishonesty hurt people. It caused people who are struggling with homosexuality to feel like they were broken, that they couldn't get rid of their feelings the way that John could. And really the whole time he's just lying about it. Now back to Royston, Georgia. This is where Jeffrey McCall lives. And we see Jeffrey with his Facebook group, Freedom March. And he now has 3,000 members in his group. And uh, we see him get this call from a mother of a trans child. And he's counseling her to stand in faith, not give in to what her child is saying and asking of her. Now her child's 20 years old. So her 20-year-old child left six months ago you can basically infer that her child's gone no contact and she says it's because her child felt that her mother was rejecting her and it's heartbreaking to hear the way jeffrey speaks about love honestly the way this mother feels she has a choice to make here i i don't understand it as a mother myself there's no scenario in which i don't want my child there's nothing that could stand in my way of accepting my child, just nothing. So I, I don't understand this brand of love. It's sad, it's conditional. And that child, that 20 year old child deserves better. She deserves a better mom. And I hope she can find one and create a found family that truly loves her. Love for your child should be enough. It should be enough for people to say, my religion must be wrong about this if they don't want me to accept my child. But then, you know, maybe religion never had the same hold on me it does for some people. And I think it became clear as the documentary progressed that the ex-gay movement is a cult. It fits with all the other cults I've been talking about to a T. So now Julie talks about how she's writing a book about her experiences. And so she gets to this part of the book that she kind of shares that you know, she would meet in Ricky's office to talk about intense topics in the ways a regular therapy appointment might go <laughs> with someone unqualified to do that, though. She felt like she had to tell Ricky everything that happened, though, like a confession. And when she reads her own journal entries from this time, she's just struck by how much of it is about how she felt like she must be evil and that she wanted God to save her. Now we see a 2009 Exodus conference, and we see Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. He's a clinical psychologist, and he's a guest speaker at that year's conference. And Michael Bussey says, you know, a lot of times people think of the ex-gay movement as a religious thing. But there were these psychologists and therapists like Dr. Nicolosi who were making their name and their money and careers through trying to cure gay people. And it was awful pseudo-psychology with no basis in science. But Exodus was looking for legitimacy and, you know, was happy to bring in these people to be a part of it. They really had a symbiotic relationship, which just a mutually beneficial business arrangement, really, between Exodus and these psychologists. And their therapy approaches and books were all over this movement and these groups. But, you know, we're making it clear here it was not because these were helpful or legitimate sources of information or help. We then see video of a reparative therapy session with Dr. Nicolosi and this young man. And we see this young man crying. He says he feels broken. 
And Dr. Nicolosi is telling him, you know, he accepts him as broken. And it it just made me feel ill because this man is not broken. He's just gay. We now see Julie in church, presumably a different kind than she used to go to. And she talks about how when she was young, Ricky and others in the movement kept telling her how she was going to be the one to take up the mantle and be one of the leaders of this movement. And she would one day be preaching to thousands of people. And she really believed that and believed, like, I've been called to God to do this thing. And everyone keeps telling her that that's how it is. Now, in 2011, at the Exodus Annual Conference, Julie does have that opportunity to speak at the conference on stage. And she begins speaking at many of these conferences at that time. And then something happens to Julie when she is in college. She is sexually assaulted, and she only tells the people in her Living Hope group. But then Ricky wants her to incorporate her story into her testimony and her speeches. And she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to share that part of herself. She was still working through what had happened to her. But Ricky started telling her that, you know, after she would speak at something, he would say, well... Your testimony would have been more powerful if you spoke about your rape. So she does start telling the story, but she says she really became so angry about having to exploit all the personal details of her life for their narrative. And she looks back now and she sees how wrong it was for them to exploit her this way. Now, to a recent Freedom March They had a national gathering in Washington, D.C., and Jeffrey gathers with people from the group, and they talk about being obedient to God, and it is just utterly heartbreaking. I don't know how many times I've said heartbreaking, but you just see these queer people gather together, and they believe that if they just try hard enough, if they just behave, if they just pray enough, that their gayness will go away, and It just, it hurts to see people hate themselves for something like this that, you know, it's just innate. It's not, it's not something to get over. And the age range of the people there, it hurts to see them. There are children gathered there. There are middle-aged people gathered there. And I'm not sure who it's more heartbreaking to see, the children or older people. We then go back to Julie. She reads to us from her book about when she began to self-harm. And she has a really elegant writing style. And the way that she writes about it is, it's very well done. But the hatred and self-loathing she once had for herself is in every word. And I couldn't help but be affected along with her fiancé as she reads aloud about how she would burn herself, about how she tried to punish herself for not being straight by literally setting herself on fire. So it it was intense. Back to Portland, Oregon with John Post and his partner. He talks about how over the years it became harder to repress his homosexuality And he began looking at gay pornography again. His wife would find it, and it would trouble her, obviously. Now, one day she asked, why can't you just obey? Like, why can't you make the godly decision? And he just said, I don't know. I don't know how to make it go away. It's getting worse the older I get. And he found himself, he says, surrounded by people who loved him 
and he felt all alone. And he says things just stopped mattering to him. And he eventually got to a point where he said if he didn't try to figure out who he really was, he was going to end up taking his own life. Now, at this time, he went to D.C. for meetings and he ends up getting drunk and goes to this gay bar. And, you know, he was pretty recognizable at this time. So someone comes up to him and recognizes him. And so he like runs outside and there's a gay activist outside the bar who takes a photo of him as he runs away. Now, Yvette, as we know, was working in D.C. for the FRC and John shows up in her office and he's shaking and he knew all this was about to come out. And he kind of lies to Yvette and says, oh, I went to this gay bar to use the bathroom, but he didn't know it was a gay bar. And he just says, you know, anyone with half a brain would know he was lying. And Yvette just says what she remembers most, though, about this moment was him hanging his head and just saying over and over again, I hope I didn't hurt the movement. I hope I didn't hurt the movement. And it's interesting that that's his reaction. Now, within five minutes, the phone's ringing off the hook at FRC. I think it's Randy Thomas who just says it's like when any charismatic, eloquent, important leader doesn't live up to their ideals, it sends everyone into a tailspin at first. They immediately remove John from his post, and it's, of course, all coming out in the media now. After this incident, his wife files for separation and divorce, and he just says he'd never been honest that entire time. It was just lie after lie after lie. And Randy says, you know, when John left the movement, it affected them, but it did not stop the movement from going forward. In 2003, we see Randy talking about the political aspirations of the group of Exodus, and this is about when the group became more involved in politics. And Exodus was saying that their main goal was to stop gay marriage, which was already gaining a foothold in some states that were starting to recognize it. And Yvette says she began working for FRC in 2008, so right before the election and the vote on Proposition 8 in California. And a big part of their message was that slippery slope message that they do, playing on fears, saying dumbass things like, oh, well, if gay people can get married, then pedophiles can marry children, as if that's somehow in any way similar. And so many churches really came together at that time to battle for Proposition 8. And Yvette says that that's, that's really what got Proposition 8 to pass. Randy talks about that night, how Obama won the presidency. He wasn't very thrilled about that. But he was talking a good game about it on social media because, you know, yay, Proposition 8 passed banning gay marriage in California. I, sorry, I don't think I explained that's what Proposition 8 was, but that's that's what it was. But then Randy says he was watching the news that night and he saw his true community, the gay community, taking to the streets, mourning the passage of Proposition 8. And he says a voice inside of him said, how could you do this to your own people? And he saw men crying and he knew that their dreams had been shattered. And he says it was after that that he just felt he could no longer speak out the way that he had before. And Yvette said that after Proposition 8, she began having extreme anxiety and panic attacks. She was actually driving to an Exodus conference when she had a panic attack, and she just didn't understand what was happening. So she ends up meeting with a therapist, a real one. <laughs> and she said, well, her therapist says, 
you know, you're having PTSD symptoms. And that's when it starts to dawn on a vet that something's really wrong here. Like her body is actually having physical symptoms that won't allow her to continue to advocate for the ex-gay movement anymore. She does talk about the movement as being about wanting to belong, to be with people who were like you, who shared your struggles. So you abide by the rules of the group, even if there's shame involved, because it feels like a small price to pay for what you get in return. And her therapist talks about how now Yvette doesn't have anyone telling her what's right or wrong or what to do. Like, you have to make those decisions for yourself. And Yvette cries and just says, you know, it's been nine years of therapy. And she's changed so much during that time. And she says it's like she doesn't recognize the person who she was when she first came there. Yvette does now identify as bisexual. She is still happily married to her husband, has children, but her feelings of sexual attraction to women never went away. And she was just not acting on them. And she mistook that for change, but it really wasn't change. It never changed inside. We then see Julie visiting this beautiful cathedral with her partner, and they're talking about the marriage ceremony that they'll have there. And she just talks about how depressed she was when she was in Living Hope, that she didn't understand why she was self-harming, and she just couldn't see that it was everything around her that was teaching her to hate herself. Now, in 2013, Lisa Ling, the journalist, does a story on the XX gay movement and those that were starting to speak out against their experiences in Exodus, including Michael Bussey, who co-founded it. And he talks about the groups he formed to support survivors and speaking out against Exodus. And for a long time, Exodus just kind of claimed that the people who left and said that they had been harmed by Exodus were like the outliers. But when the press starts reporting on these survivors, it became a lot harder for Exodus to ignore them. And like in any cult, the people still in it were isolated from those who left. They weren't allowed to keep contact with them. And then one day, Julie wrote a blog post on the Exodus site. And at the end of the post, she says something like about how sorry she is that ex-members had felt they were harmed by it and that they didn't feel like God loved them where they were now and that she hoped one day to hear their stories. Well, Michael Bussey reads this blog post and he reaches out to her and says if you want to hear their stories i can make that happen basically so he sets up this facebook group he ends up with 75 people who were willing to join this group and tell their stories and julie says some of them were so gracious about talking to her considering who and what she was representing there they were honest about how much ex-gay teaching had ruined their lives and then Lisa Ling ends up reaching out and saying that she heard about this group, this Facebook group, and asks if they'd be willing to tape something face-to-face. -face. And so she invites current Exodus leaders to join in, and they do. And Michael Bussey says that this was the most intense group therapy encounter he'd ever had. So we do see clips from that meeting. We see some of the survivors who definitely took their opportunity to confront the people who had hurt them. And when one woman says, you know, she can no longer be silent because their words are causing kids to kill themselves. And it was, that was very hard to hear and listen to. I, I paused a lot during this documentary, if you couldn't tell. There were times where I just had to take, take a minute. 
Now, Julie was in this meeting, and she says being there, she realized that she identified more with the survivors and the things that they were saying. It was what she had been going through. And their stories of deep, deep pain really shook her. And she felt like in many ways they were sharing her own story. And she felt like she was sitting on the wrong side of that circle. And it was then that she knew she couldn't be a part of this hurt anymore. Randy says when he saw this, he he knew Exodus was done. He knew it was death, he says. And he knew Exodus could no longer promote change because it wasn't a change. They were harming people. And so in 2013, they do announce that they are no longer going to continue as Exodus. Now, after this, Julie says she did feel the loss of that community, but she had to leave it to become healthier. There was no one in her life that was saying it was okay to be who she was and that they would still love her. And when she moved on, she finally felt happy and light for the first time. And she says now she can separate Jesus from the Christians who hurt her. But just because Exodus ended doesn't mean that other ministries like it don't continue, like Ricky and Living Hope and Jeff McCall and his group, and conversion therapy continues. Things like the Restored Hope Network, which is the one that Ann Paulk, John's ex-wife, is a part of. Yvette does talk about the indoctrination of it all, and she says even though there's been a mass defection of the old leaders, new ones have, of course, risen up in their place. And we do see Jeffrey's group now. We see how it continues. I can't help but think about how depressing that is to watch history repeat itself. Now, when Randy talks about eventually coming out as gay, a gay person asked him what he thought about the blood on his hands. And Randy said, all I know is I'm afraid to look down at my hands. And that as a leader, he had rationalized, he'd been trained to acknowledge the loss, but to go into denial. And for many people who don't commit suicide, they're killing themselves internally for thinking that they aren't who God wants them to be. He says he can't look back and say that he deserves forgiveness um, because what he did was so wrong. And he says when you realize how much harm you've done, it's devastating and crushing, but apologies only go so far. You can't give people back those years, and now you can only speak out against it and speak out strongly. And I think that really speaks to what happens in a cult. The victims of a cult are often also the perpetrators. We then see footage of Julie and her partner walking down the aisle hand in hand and, you know, hard to keep a dry eye there. And you see Julie at the altar about to say her vows and you can still see the scars on her arm from the time in her life when she did hate herself. But she's much happier now but not everyone is. Um, Ex-gay leaders are doing what they believe is the best thing. And what they think whole and healthy is to be something that they can't be. And as long as homophobia exists, some version of exodus will emerge. It's not the organization or their methods. It's the underlying belief that being gay needs to change. And as long as that exists, there's going to be some form of exodus and at the last frame, as Michael is the one saying this, we see Jeffrey. At the very end of the documentary, we have some words on a blank screen that approximately 700,000 people have gone through a form of conversion therapy in the U.S. A national survey found that LGBTQ plus youth 
who experienced conversion therapy were more than twice as likely to commit suicide. So, you know, there's real consequences to what goes on in conversion therapy. Ricky Shalette and Ann Pock are cowards and denied the request for interviews. Yes, I added the cowards part. And my last thoughts are to go back to the cult aspects of the ex-gay movement. The aftermath is not pretty. Leaving the cult does not make everything instantly better, especially if you played a large part in it. Like I said before, often the victims of a cult are also the perpetrators in a cult. We've seen that play out recently in the ex-Scientology community in particular, if you know about that. It's a hard thing to reconcile that you could both have blood on your hands and also be a victim and survivor. Okay, <laughs> I lied. One last thought before I go. Just about the idea that you can change your sexuality. The thing I never hear these people say who think sexuality is a lifestyle or a choice is that if you're straight and nothing could make you gay, why would the reverse of this not also be true? Now, as always, I would love to know your thoughts about this one. You can find me on Instagram at Let's Talk About It or on my blog at tumblr.com slash Let's Talk About It and let me know what documentary you want me to watch next. If you can, check out my Q&A and poll for the week if you're on Spotify. Leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you listen there. And please tell anyone who loves documentaries to check out this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next Tuesday with another listener-recommended documentary to talk about. Bye.